Today's show is sponsored by PingPlotter. Test end user connections for any worker from anywhere using PingPlotter's network troubleshooting app. Get connectivity and performance details quickly and efficiently and solve problems faster. Visit pingplotter.com slash packpushers to learn more and get 25% off your first three months. That's pingplotter.com slash packetpushers. Welcome back to the Full Stack Journey podcast, where we talk about the ongoing evolution of the IT professional to help equip and prepare listeners for their journey of learning across the full stack of technologies in today's data centers and cloud environments. I'm Drew Connery Murray, co-host of the Network Break podcast on the Packet Pushers Podcast Network. Scott Lowe's on vacation, but he'll be back for the next episode, presumably with a slideshow of vacation photos. Uh, today's show, we're going to be talking about essential skills for IT professionals, and my guest is Duan Lightfoot. He is Senior Cloud Networking Developer Advocate at AWS Cloud. You may know Duan from his work as the content creator behind Lab Every Day, where he posts blogs and videos on technical topics and professional development. You can follow him on Twitter, at Lab Every Day, all one word. Uh, Duan, welcome to the show. How you doing? Hey, Drew. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm my pleasure. Well. How about yourself? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you. That's good. Uh, so recently you wrote a Twitter thread on five skills you learned if you were just getting started in IT in 2022. I thought it would make a great starting point for a conversation around skills development, like where and why to focus your efforts, career advancement, and so on. So what are the five skills you identified? We'll go through each one quickly and then drill into uh, each one more in depth. Yes. So the five skills are... The first is to learn the code. Mm -hmm. Number two is learn Linux. The third item is to learn the fundamentals of networking. Okay, that's always a good one. Yes. Fourth item is going to be learn cloud computing. And then lastly is to post your journey online. Okay, post your journey online. All right, so let's dig in right to the top. Learn to code. This is always kind of like a, a perennial topic in IT, like, okay, what do you mean coding? Are we talking about automation? Do I have to be a developer, even if it's that that's not what I wanted to do in IT? So you have several options, but we can start with web development. As we know, everything is pretty much has a web web page when it comes to businesses or has some type of mobile app. And the number one programming language currently now is JavaScript, which is, you know, used for the front end of web development. Uh -huh. The second programming language that I think, or honestly, this is the first one, but it's actually number two on the list is going to be Python. And that's widely used amongst software developers, network engineers, and the internet of things, which is your IoT devices. It's used in the cloud. It's used in network automation. It's widely used, and I think it's going to be even more um, used here in the future. What's the value of coding for someone who might be, say, in networking or operations or security-wide? You know, are you saying I need to go out and be able to build a, a mobile app or a website? It, it all depends on what you want to do. If we're talking about software development, of course, learning to code and yeah. develop web pages and mobile apps, you're going to have to understand um, software development and web development for that. But when we're talking about traditional um, infrastructure positions like network engineers, system engineers, in those positions, learning some type of programming language where you can script and automate processes is important in today's landscape and in the future because more and more in industries are using and leveraging software-defined networking as well as some type of con controller-based infrastructure mm -hmm. to where you're using 
APIs or um, application programming interfaces to communicate with different devices and manage your um, infrastructure. So you're saying by getting familiar with coding basics, coding fundamentals, I'll be more comfortable if I need to write a script for some automation or I need to work with APIs, which is the way, you know, organizations are essentially gluing together different services, whether in the cloud or on-prem. Correct. Learning the code, it can make your job easier. It could help with the innovation within your organization and it can help you stand out on your resume and amongst, you know, um, your current job role or your future job role. If I'm in a role that doesn't necessarily prioritize uh, scripting or coding, how do you have recommendations on how I could utilize the skills I'm trying to develop if it's not something I'm going to necessarily do every day or use every day? I've had this challenge as well, especially when I was on the help desk. The challenge for me was to find ways to implement what I was learning. And sometimes you can't do that. You know, if you're learning how to script or automate, you've always want to get you want to test your code and you want to get approval before you implement <laughs> any type of code or scripts into production. And so what I would do is work with my team leads, work with my management to talk about automation, see how we can leverage it. And then if I'm in a role to where I can leverage automation, I'll find ways to, let's say, um, automate account creation while I'm on the help desk or to update interface device changes on switches to make my job easier and to share my code amongst my teams to help with that awareness and onboarding and adoption amongst my organization. So you've got a network engineering background, so I assume you've had experience with the CLI. Do you feel like there's any affinity between having some CLI experience and then trying to learn something like Python or JavaScript? I think so. My first instance of any type of automation was using the um, Cisco EEM, which is your Cisco Embedded Event Manager, Mm -hmm. where I would um, write different scripts on a router or a switch in the EEM scripts would kick off and run. Let's say an interface goes down and fails over or send some type of notification to, um, let's say, a tweet. You can do some cool things like that with the EEM. So that was my first instance there. And yes, the CLI did help with that. And what about, I'm thinking about tools like Ansible, Terraform, where it's not quite coding that you're doing, but you are, you know, sort of working with manifest and doing other things that seem coding like. Do you feel like that's an entryway into the skill set? I think it is. I like to say, you know, use Ansible until it can no longer do what you want it to do. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of gives you those guardrails to um, configuration management. So Ansible is a good start to learn how to, um, let's say, automate your infrastructure without having to tell the code how to do it. Ansible takes care of all that for you. Okay. And at the top of the conversation, you mentioned JavaScript and Python. Do you see those as sort of the the big ones that if I'm just generally in IT, I can put some time into and I'll find a use for them? I, I think so. Um, if you, Let's say you're managing your own website, learning some JavaScript and some HTML, CSS can be really helpful. Um, understanding databases can be really helpful, as well as um, knowing how, how to use Python and finding ways to apply um, Python into your day-to-day workflows. That's awesome. But you also missing Ansible. So finding ways to learn and leverage Ansible can be helpful, too. Now, if I'm learning to code, does it make sense to get into Git or GitHub or some kind of repository to you know sort of build those habits around Checking code in, checking code out, getting code review, having a, a process or a pipeline? Uh, of course. 
I mentioned, you know, collaborating with your, amongst your team. So if you're using some type of version control, not only does it help you to manage the different versions of your code, but it will help you to collaborate amongst your team with the different code and scripts that you write within your organization. So learning that is a huge part when we start talking about DevOps and automation and, you know, the cloud. Uh-huh. Uh, where do you see the role of learning to code in terms of uh, cloud, whether you're helping, you know, migrate workloads into the cloud or um, helping the organization build native, build apps natively in the cloud? If, if Once you really start um, managing workloads in the cloud, you're going to want want to learn some sort of automation, whether that's the um, AWS SDK tools or using some type of cloud, cloud formation or Terraform. That's going to be important because when you think about uh, building a VPC, building EC2 instances inside the AWS console and doing that manual task over and over, that takes time and mistakes happen. Automation kinds kinds in a way gives us those safeguards to say, okay, I need a hundred VPCs. And so now you can build templates. You can have those templates peer reviewed amongst your team and approved. And then every time that automation runs, you know, it's going to build exactly the same way each time that it um, builds on AWS. Yeah, absolutely. And having that templating can help reduce those errors that tend to creep in when you're doing things manually. Yes. Are there any, uh, sites or tools or recommendations you give for folks who are just wanting to get their feet wet, get started um, with a, a programming language? There are several sites that I like to reference when it comes to programming. So for Python specifically, there's a great course by MIT that covers Python. That's one of my go-tos just to understand the language, mm-hmm. as well as YouTube. There's some great resources and I could send those to you. You could um, put them in the show notes, but those are like two of my main resources when I started Python. Okay, great. Yeah. YouTube, there's a ton of stuff on Python on YouTube. Absolutely. All right. Yeah. And we'll have those links in the show notes. All right. So that was uh, point number one, learn to code. Let's move on to number two, learn Linux. Uh, why, why Linux of all the OSs out there? <laughs> I know. Um, I've been in IT for over 10 years and for the longest I was using Windows and I was comfortable as a system administrator using Windows, getting comfortable in, in PowerShell. Uh-huh. But once I got into network engineering and I started supporting like developers that managed databases or developers that did some type of front-end web development, what I found was that many of them are building their applications, writing their code and managing the workloads on some type of Linux platform. And so for me as a network engineer to learn how to troubleshoot these network connections and to log into these devices and um, do a netstat or whatever I need to do to troubleshoot them, I had to learn Linux. And so that was like the beginning. And then I got into network automation. And so a lot of the tools that I started using, like Ansible, um, some Python libraries were only written for Linux. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. that just kept peeling back the onion and opening up this window to showing me that a lot of our infrastructure, in, including in the cloud and on the cloud, is being built and operated and ran on Linux. Yeah, I know under the covers, under a lot of network appliances, particularly in the security space, you're going to find it's a Linux OS and also a lot of switches. Correct. Correct. Exactly. Some some um, Cisco switches have Linux built in and they're actually written in some type of Linux code. 
So why then, of all the things I, you know, as an IT professional need to learn, why bother even with the underlying OS when we're moving into more and more layers of abstraction, whether it's a virtual machine or now Kubernetes or some other layer of abstraction on top where I don't even need to pay attention to the OS? Why should I dig into a particular OS itself? Correct. A lot, a lot of what we're seeing is going to be some type of serverless application that will manage our workloads and run our workloads for us. But when you think about those workloads are actually being ran on Linux. Kubernetes often is ran on top of Linux as well. And so understanding how to, let's say, write a Docker container or write a Docker file, spin up a Docker image, this is going to be ran on Linux. Uh-huh. That's, I don't think that's going anywhere. Okay, so even as we start to abstract away more of the underlying infrastructure, you still need to know what's going on under the hood if ever you need to pop it open and see, you know, fix a problem or try to diagnose an issue. Right. I mean, when you look at, let's say, something like Cisco ACI or um, a Palo Alto, um, what is it, Panorama, Uh when you look at those and they're all centralized, you still have to log into the device, the actual device itself sometimes, and there's going to be some type of CLI there. Right. And so having that foundational knowledge to understand bash commands, uh, um, understanding how to navigate within Linux is always going to be important. Is there a particular flavor of Linux you might recommend for folks wanting to get started or start to play around? You know, for the longest, it was um, CentOS for me just Mm -hmm. because I come from that real background. But I think more and more, it's just easier to spin up an Ubuntu environment and get started with Debian. Okay, Ubuntu and Debian. Okay. And you also mentioned Red Hat, which is, you know, if you're in the enterprise or even in the cloud, probably you're going to run to that as well. Yes. All right. So let's move on to number three, learning network fundamentals. And I definitely agree with this one being on the packet pushers. Um, of all the, you know, different silos across the IT spectrum, why would you highlight networking aside from the fact that that's where you come from? Understanding networking, you know, there's fundamentals of DNS how DNS operates is important to a developer. It's important to a systems engineer. It's important to a network engineer to understand. And so once we start talking about DNS, then we also have to talk about TCP, UDP, uh-huh. all these fundamental um, protocols in networking is something I think can help you when you write your applications, when you troubleshoot applications on both sides of the, the spectrum. And what's the benefit for me as maybe, you know, an ops person or even a developer when all I want is a VLAN or some kind of, uh, you know, network hook I can plug into and let my code run? Why do I need to care about, you know, what's happening with the packets or the IP addresses? (laughs) That's that's a good point. When you talk about the IP addresses, that's something you need to understand. If you have a slash 24 and let's say the IP address is outside of the range of your actual subnet for your default gateway, you need to understand, okay, maybe this communication is is not happening because of my default gateway is wrong or because my IP address of my local node or my local host is incorrect. These are fundamental networking principles that can help you troubleshoot and improve your applications and, you know, kind of save some time in between operations. (laughs) <laughs> instead of going down to networking and saying it doesn't work and it right. must be the network's <laughs> fault. Yes. <laughs> um, are the, you mentioned DNS. We talked a little bit about IP addresses. Are there areas, because networking is so huge, are there areas where you would recommend for folks who aren't primarily uh, responsible for networking, where might they want to start in this giant field? It, the, just understanding the OSI model. The, the seven-layer dip of the OSI. Yes, yes, the seven-layer 
OSI, TCPIP model, um, either one, understanding how that operates. I think starting there is a good foundation of when it comes to networking. That'll let you know how the entire stack works up and down. Okay, so that also sort of gives me uh, some sort of guidelines for where I want to do my learning. Maybe start with Ethernet and then move up the stack to TCP/IP and so on. Correct. Yeah, uh, layer one is always a good place to start. <laughs> and it's a plug in. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first one. <laughs> um, why would you prioritize networking over other disciplines like security, which is essential, or storage, obviously also essential? I think security is inherited in the journey, like it's built in. You know, once you get into IT, once you get into infrastructure, you begin to learn about security. Um, if you if you work on the network plus, it's going to have some layer of security in there. If you start learning the cloud, we're going to talk about the six pillars of AWS. The security is going to be built into there. And security, no matter where you start your journey at, is going to be a part. If you're a software developer, you have to understand how to secure your applications and how to develop secure code. So security, I didn't mention it because I believe that it's just a part of your journey, no matter where you go. So you're saying if I you get into networking in, in any amount of depth, you're going to start to run into issues around things like segmentation, access control, firewalling, ACLs, that kind of thing. And that brings in that security element. Correct. And, and of course, you can always go deeper than the introductory level that you'll get in your specific um, discipline. But you know, just to get started with the basis of security, like, like you mentioned, it's, it's built in. Okay. Let's pause the conversation for a brief message from sponsor Pingplotter. If you're supporting remote workers, you need visibility into end-user networks. Pingplotter is a network troubleshooting app that constantly tests connections from the end-user's perspective. Diagnose internet connection problems for any worker from anywhere using a centralized dashboard. Pingplotter helps you unravel issues quickly and efficiently thanks to automated alerts. It includes REST API alerts that enable event-based automations across multiple apps. Pingplotter's Insight tool helps you dispatch more of the workload to frontline support and basic network troubleshooting to end users. You can have a diagnosis in as little as 10 minutes without any intervention on your part. Pingplotter helps make remote work better for your IT team and your end users. Visit pingplotter.com slash packetpusher to learn more and find out how you can get 25% off your first three months. One more time, that's pingplotter.com slash packetpushers. And now back to the conversation. All right, so let's move on to the fourth one, which is learn cloud and <laughs> even more than networking. This is a big topic. So when you say learn cloud, that's like, uh, okay, that's overwhelming. Where do I start? You know, it, it can definitely be overwhelming. And so I like to start with like three questions when it comes to the cloud. If, if you're wondering what the cloud is, okay, start there, Google that and understand what the cloud is. Um, understand why the cloud is important and then understand what companies are leveraging the cloud and how they're using the cloud. Look up use cases of how companies in the industry are using the cloud in their organizations because once you have the big picture, then we can go into the details and understand, okay, the cloud is computing on-demand delivery of services over the internet with pay-as-you-go pricing. You know, then we can peel back that on you. Okay, so you're saying start with why the cloud first, this sort of strategic element. Because, And I actually think that's important because I know from talking with a lot of folks on the networking side, they have these marching orders to go to the cloud because, I don't know, everybody's going to the cloud and the boss said, we got to go to the cloud, but why? So you, that, that first question is why. I think that's important. 
Yes, that's important. And and like I mentioned, there's use cases out there to, to see how um, companies in the industry are using the cloud. And once you start reading those use cases, then you can have a big picture of how it's being applied across multiple industries. Well, pretty much all industry right now. So uh, once I get that answer, uh, we're doing cloud because of X, uh, where do I start to drill in? Do I want to think about you know, setting up an instance, uh, establishing a VPC, that kind of thing? Or how do I, you know, begin to get my hands into cloud? Where do I want to go? That's the, the where to start is, I think is going to pertain to what, where you are in your career. Like if you want to just get started with the, let's say AWS, well, the AWS solutions architect or the cloud practitioner is a good place to give you those, that learning path, those guardrails to kind of introduce you to the AWS services, introduce you to the shared responsibility model, introduce you to the AWS six pillars that we build on AWS. It'll kind of give you all of the background, the why, the how, and then from there you can learn, you know, how to build with an EC2 instance or to um, create an S3 bucket or something like that. You have made that journey yourself, having gone from network engineering to working for AWS. Do, do you find, do, do you feel like moving from, you know, sort of the enterprise realm to the cloud realm, things are different? Or is it just kind of where all the substrates, the, the sub constructs are the same, but just different names? How did that transition work for you? I, I think it's it's a little bit of everything that you mentioned. It's different. There's ab abstractions where I can see where the similarities exist. Um, but I think the biggest thing that would like help me was to understand, okay, this is why we have infrastructure as code. This is why um, not just the infrastructure as code. Okay, this is where APIs are really being applied because everything is pretty much an API. And as well as the scale, you know, when you think about all the years that I spent doing infrastructure, going through the process of, let's say, building out a simple VLAN can take can take a while because now we have to um, determine the IP address and we got to make sure there's no overlaps. If if we don't have some type of v, VTP, if we need a new switch, like there's so many questions that we have to ask. And if we new, do need a new switch, how long is it going to take to not only get the switch, order the switch, get the switch approved, get the <laughs> switch built, get the switch validated, and then, you know, finally spin up, do a no shut on the interface to have, you know, everything implemented. So all of that takes time, but something as simple as in the cloud as a VPC what you can spin this up in in minutes. Okay, so that makes it easy to get into, but then we know that uh, the cloud can get very complex very quickly. And if you're not careful with things like identity and authentication, permissions, segmenting, so on, uh, you can run into some trouble. Correct. And this is why I mentioned the certification learning path, because that provides you a roadmap of um, everything we mentioned about the um, shared responsibility model, the AWS six pillars, you know, what is the cloud? And then it talks about the AWS services. So understanding that will help you to um, see the security um, points that you mentioned and think about those when you're bidding on AWS. I think another perspective that people have of the cloud is, okay, I'm tired of running physical infrastructure. I want to go access cloud resources and just let the cloud do it for me. So isn't it just kind of easy and I don't have to worry about it anymore? How much is there to actually learn about the cloud? And I guess what I'm saying is, isn't the cloud easy or are there complications underneath that I should be aware of? The, the, I think the fundamental to your question is, 
Does the cloud do it all for you? No, there's something called the AWS shared responsibility model to where security and compliance is a shared responsibility between AWS and the customer. Uh So the customer is responsible for security in the cloud. AWS is responsible for security of the cloud. So you still have to know how to secure your data, how to build your operating systems, and then also understand identity and access management in AWS. Okay, so I, as the customer, still have responsibility, and I think the sort of canonical example is the S3 bucket that has a public IP address. Correct. Yes, if you're going to open your S3 bucket up public, you have to understand implementation. Implement. <laughs> yes, you have to understand what's going to happen if you do that. Right, because that is reachable from the internet. <laughs> Correct. Yes. Publicly everywhere. Publicly everywhere. <laughs> Unless you put some type of policy on it, so you really have to understand um, this whenever you're going to do that. Okay. Um, and the cloud also, you know, tends to get subdivided into infrastructure as a service. So that's the typical big three public cloud providers we think of AWS, Azure and Google and, and others outside the US. But then there's also software as a service, which is um, services that run in the cloud that are delivered to you. You consume them as applications and, and um, oh, now I'm drawing a blank on the third one. Pass. Platform as a service. And then there's also platform as a service. Do you um, have a recommendation for folks wanting to start to explore cloud? Uh, does it matter which one of the three they get into? AWS has something called LightSail. If you want to get started with spinning up a virtual machine and you don't want to have to worry about configuring the network and you don't want to have to worry about configuring a VPC or anything like that, LightSail is a great way to get started. Spin up your, um, virtual, your virtual instance in the cloud and everything else is taking care of it for you. So that's a great place to start. Now, if you're someone that understands networking and you're ready to get started in managing your own virtual machine, um, using the default VPC that's already built in every region on AWS, spin up an EC2 instance in that region, get started there. And then once you're comfortable there, then you can create a custom VPC and then you can really start building out your infrastructure. Okay. All right, and let's go on to number five um, on the uh, IT skills you think folks should learn, particularly if you're, coming, if you're new to IT. And this is post your journey, meaning sort of document and write about or record your journey. And you, first of all, what's the rationale for that? Why would I do that? I think the hardest part about entering, let's say, IT or transitioning into a new position is standing out, being seen, getting noticed, especially if you don't have a network of um people that you know in the industry uh-huh. and you don't have a track worker of um, different companies that you work for to build those relationships, I think getting noticed by posting your content online can be extremely helpful, especially if you do it the right way. What do you mean by the right way? What is the right way to you? The right way means that you're, you're, you're intently focused on the, the um, technology in the career field that you want to um, grow in. So if you want to be a network engineer, share content around networking, connect with other networking professionals in the industry, as well as write blog posts, um, share your certification journeys, and make YouTube videos. Now, whichever one you feel comfortable with, you can start a podcast. However you decide, whatever medium you decide to use, that's completely up to you. But I, I do recommend, you know, putting yourself out there and so people can see you. Okay, so creating content, whether it's a blog, a video, a podcast, is a way to get noticed. Um, I guess I think one of the things we as a 
content platform run into is people saying, you know, why does anybody care about my journey? And why does anybody care that I wrote this little blog about, you know, some simple thing? I think what I found, and this is how I started on YouTube. I didn't start it to get noticed that that was never my goal. My goal was to, um, at the time I was a system administrator, I had just passed my CCMP. Mm-hmm. I wanted to continue learning my skills around networking and also land a job in networking. But the only way I could stay current in networking skills was to create labs and talk about networking in some form. So I chose YouTube to do that. And I wanted to do that while being black in IT, because when I was you know, prepared for my CCNA and CCMP, I didn't see anybody black on YouTube that was uh-huh doing the same thing. Uh-huh. Okay. So you, besides wanting to create content, you also felt it was important that that element of representation. Correct. I just wanted to get back. Okay. So I, I, the other thing I think when f- folks, the, the notion of creating content gives people pauses. They think I'm not an expert. I don't, you know, I didn't, I, what, what, how do I know what to write about? So how would you, encourage folks to sort of get over that. Like, how do I, I think there's a risk of if I post something online, I might get something wrong and then, uh, you know, I'll embarrass myself or people will tear me down. I think that could happen. Yes. And I think you have to be okay, even in, 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 in the work, in the work, in your job, getting yourself wrong, embarrassing yourself can happen. Right. I think <laughs> yes, there's at some point we all go through that. And yeah. so, what happens online, if you get something wrong, someone may correct you and hopefully they go about it the right way. And so what you have to do is learn from that and grow and improve. And so through your growth, through your journey, because that's what it's all about, posting your journey, you show your growth, you show how you can admit when you're wrong and you can come back, correct yourself and then improve and grow in that progression to just being a visual track record, not for anybody else, but for yourself. You know, if you learn something new, this is your way to document it for yourself to go back to have your own reference of information in your own words that you know how to read and understand. So anytime you get stuck or come across this problem again, you have your own online documentation and it just so happens it can help you in your career field. OK, so it's a you know, you get a two for one deal. It may help you down the line when you have to fix a problem. I've heard lots of folks say, oh, yeah, I, I searched uh, on how to fix X and it turned out, hey, I wrote a blog post on it myself and it was a good instruction and it helped me out. So you get that. But that also then can potentially get you noticed, elevate your profile uh, in the community and potentially lead to new opportunities. Correct. Definitely. So you, uh, I think, are maybe an anomaly in that you are putting out content all the time. How do you find the time to do it? And how do you recommend folks who have obviously a full-time job and maybe family responsibilities or other commitments make time to actually create content? Because it does take time. Um, so there was a time when I put out content all the time, right? And I worked my job. But I think there was also a time where I had to take a step back and prioritize because um, there's going to be projects that'll be extremely demanding in your work and your um, on the job. There's going to be family issues, which is, you know, that's always, you know, at the top of the list on my priorities. And so knowing, okay, if I have the time, how can I be efficient in managing that time to put out content? So creating some type of strategy to where maybe you can front load content and then um, being committed to that because the more you're committed to your learning, which, you know, lab every day is something I've always lived, then 
the easier it'll be to put out that content. And so whenever I'm going through learning something new, which is pretty much every day I try to, um, I'm documenting that journey. Do you have uh, recommendations on whether start with a blog, start with a video, start with a podcast? What, I, I think you like to do video, but do you, how does someone sort of figure out their preference or you know, what's going to be easiest or most pleasant for them to create that content? At AWS, we have a leadership principle, learn and be curious. And so I think you have to learn and be curious, find what medium works best for you, because it could be a blog post or you may not have time for that. could be a video, but you may not have time to edit. It could be a podcast. You maybe have more time for a podcast or it could just be live streams on Twitch where you don't have time to edit or do the thumbnails. You just got time to stream every night or something for 30 minutes or five minutes or 10 minutes, whatever, you know, works for you. Right. That's true. You don't really have to be bound even by editing anymore with uh, live streaming opportunities. You can just turn it on and go if that's how you feel comfortable presenting material. Yes. It's one of those things that, you know, I've never been caught up on gaining followers or anything like that. <laughs> um, what, what I found is that if you do it because you genuinely want to learn to help people, you'll always be fulfilled. You'll never be let down. And so if you're streaming, sometimes you just being there, being consistent and being and people seeing you being consistent motivates other people to do the same thing. I think that's very true. And it's probably good to set expectations around audience. If you're just doing it for likes or clicks, or because you want to see that, you know, page view number go up, you know, you may be in for a long haul because it does take some time to create an audience, build an audience and get people ready to receive information from you and then start to expect information from you. Correct. And, and you know, once you determine that you want to do it for your audience, then you're kind of bound to you know, the algorithms and what your audience wants. And sometimes <laughs> if you focus on that, that goes in a different direction to where you want to go in your career or in your own goals. And so long as you stay in tune with where you want to go, then you won't have to worry about any of those other distractions. Yeah. I think if you're at the point where you're like trying to tweak for SEO optimization, then maybe you have kind of lost a little bit of that authenticity. And I think that's really what I mean, I myself as a content consumer want to feel like, yeah, this is a person who not only is sharing something, but also in a way has my own interests in mind, not just their own. Correct. I think that's important. You know, everybody's not going to look at it that way and that's okay. But for the ones that are looking to grow their skills and, you know, want to get back or want to document their journey, it's important to keep wherever you want to go, your destination or your, your I would say your marker um, in line and in scope and stay on that journey. So you also mentioned being part of the community and you also mentioned being black in IT and not seeing a lot of representation. How do you feel like the community is, particularly for folks from marginalized communities, uh, black women and so on? How do, what, do you have a sense that the community is, has it changed over the past 10 years that you've been involved? Yes, it's, it's drastically changed. I think Twitter has a, a large black community on it. YouTube is getting better, but I think just because of the nature of YouTube is it's a real competitive platform. Mm. It can be hard to be seen on YouTube, especially if you don't uh, make content that people actually search for. So that can be um, a challenge. LinkedIn is a, a great community as well, but there's also other meetups, you know, that people are doing or were doing, you know, before the pandemic. So. Okay. Like in-person meetups at VMUGs and so like, on. Right. Okay. Yeah. Your local mug. Uh-huh. Okay. Do you have a sense that those are going to start to come back now with the pandemic? Well, I don't know if it's receding, but <laughs> folks are feeling a little bit more comfortable going outside now. They're definitely going to come back. I know I'm planning to do a meetup 
here this summer in Washington, D.C., where I'm relocating. Okay. Um, and how about sort of the, the the tone of the community? Because being online, you know, you do when you join a community and you can't open yourself up to harsh comments, racist comments, unpleasant comments, just, you know, attacks and trolling. What do you feel like is the, I, my experience with the online community has been very positive. It seems like a good group, but then I'm, you know, a white male. And so I, <laughs> I think I enjoy, um, you know, protections that other people don't. What is your feeling on the sort of the, the, the tenor of the community, the tone of the community in terms of uh, respect and promotion. I think Twitter can be a rough place. I think online <laughs> social media can be a really challenging, distracting place. Mm-hmm. I'm always been the type to where I don't really look at timelines. I don't really look at things like that because I, I understand the traps and the distractions that they offer. What I try to do is create lists of people that I follow and want to check, you know, keep tabs on and support. And if somebody tags me in something or somebody mentions somebody, I'll go check them out. But I I really try to watch what I put into my um, my mental space, because when you do have a lot that you want to accomplish, you know, sometimes it could just be a tweet, a um, a headline or just something simple that can knock you off knock your whole day off, which can turn into two days. And, you know, you can't get that time back. Yeah, I've experienced that for sure. Okay, so you're saying you're kind of careful in curating your community, who you allow in and what you want to see. I, I think so. Yes, I, I am that. I, but I also focus more on um, added value than than I do um, digesting content. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's good, adding value. I have to say you are one of the most positive presences in the uh, online IT community I've come across. And that's why you're in my timeline. I really appreciate that. Aside from the technical information, you know, you just, you, you do bring positivity to the space, which I think is important. Thanks, Drew. I, I do my best. You know, I come from a background where it wasn't always positive, you know, uh-huh. and it was, it was a challenging growing up. And so, you know, when things got rough, I realized that your outlook is what's going to determine, you know, your, how you feel is going to determine your future. You know, if something's going to be bad, sometimes it's not as bad as you think. You know, most times it's not as bad as you think or as they appear, you know. So I just kind of just always stay positive and realize that just because it rained today doesn't mean the sun won't shine tomorrow. That's right. All right. So let's uh, start to wrap up. We had talked when I saw your uh, you, you posted your five things folks getting into IT should learn. And I, there was something I was expecting to be on there that wasn't. And that was certifications. So where do you see certifications uh, playing a role in an IT career? Are you sort of pro anti certification neutral? What's your, what's your take? Yeah, you know, I think certifications are. They add value to your career, they add value to your resume. They help you get interviews, but ultimately what certifications do, in my, in my opinion, is they provide you a path to learn to new technologies, mm-hmm. but they do not provide you skills. Only experience can provide you that. Yes. I think that's a really important distinction. Um, I, my take on certificates is that they sort of give you a roadmap uh, and a structure if you need some structure on what to learn, but you're absolutely right that it doesn't mean just because you have the cert, you have the skill, which does come from experience. Right. And I think, you know, just because I do have a lot of certifications, but I like the challenge of certifications. I like 
okay, I'm, I'm learning this, but I don't think I'm learning everything I need to learn. And so by going the certification path, it could challenge me to go deeper. But still, when I get into the job, oftentimes everything I learned in the certification was not enough to actually be um, proficient enough in the job. So how would you recommend, you know, if I'm getting a certification, but I also want to start to get uh, the actual experience, but maybe my role doesn't necessarily allow me that. Are there ways I can still play with things, do things, use things to try to round out that experiential aspect beyond just the book learning? So I lied. The book learning is great. Watching videos is great. Um, but I lied, you know, create you a AWS account, use the cloud, build on the cloud, get comfortable in the cloud, in the AWS console. And then from there, once you get the certification, if it's what you want to do, find a job in that field. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I talk to a lot of people and I mentor a lot of people and they often get a certification and then want to work on another certification that may not be in line with where they want to go in their career, but just because they think the certification helped them because it's another certification. But I think if you get the CCNA, you get the AWS Solutions Architect or some type of certification like that. You should go in the direction of the job role of that certification. So that way you can t- take what you learned from the exam and then build upon it with actual skills and experience in that job role. And that notion of posting your journey, do you, uh, it sounds like you could tie that back to the labbing aspect as well, or even the on-the-job experience as well, where that creates fodder for you to write about or blog about or record videos about that that lab work or that on, that work you're doing on the job. The lab work, definitely, you know, you have to be careful about posting what you're doing on the job. You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you really, that's something you really have to be careful about and make sure that you're not posting you know, password, IP addresses, <laughs> network designs, and all of that. Right. So, or customer names or anything like that. So you have to really be like careful on that. But I do recommend doing the lab environments. Okay. And then labbing can turn into a blog post or a video and so on. Yes. Well, Duan, I think we're about out of time. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing and being so open with us. Um, I, I think it was a great conversation. Uh, any last thoughts before we wrap up? No, uh, I just want to say thank you. And to you, Drew, and to Packer Pushers, you know, for bringing me on to the platform. It's been a great conversation. Great. Thank you. Um, and where can folks follow you if they want to find out what you're up to? Yes, you can follow me on Lab Every Day on Twitter and YouTube and Dewan Lightfoot on LinkedIn. All right. That's at Lab Every Day on Twitter, Dewan Lightfoot on LinkedIn. Dewan, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and we will see you next time on Full Stack Journey. Mm-hmm.